Hello and welcome to the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Barbara Fisher. With me tonight is Morgana. Hi. And Marco Acevedo. He's returned. And he has an interesting project he's been working on for a while. I've gotten some hints from him about it, but nothing, nothing too big. So we get to hear about it for the first time tonight, and so do you. Okay. All right. I guess maybe I should start with the sort of the working title of the project. Um, right now, it's sort of a, I'm pulling it together in the form of a presentation. And I'll let you know where that, where the venue or possible venues for that could be. Um, but the title is The Spark and the Vessel, colon, um, Reverse Engineering the Flying Saucer Archetype. So, flying, and specifically, I'm talking about flying saucer versus the broader term UFO, or as I guess the powers that be are trying to shift it these days, UAP. <laughs> but um, the this all came about from, I would say, it's sort of a collision between um, two things. One, of course, I've always been interested in. The weird and the anomalous. Um, in particular, I think I think UFOs have always been my, sort of my my main bag. I mean, I grew up with flying saucers and reading all the you know cool paperbacks of the '60s and '70s that talked about that kind of thing. And and of course, it was really part of the culture. I mean, you know, the Starship Enterprise is a flying saucer with mm -hmm. rockets attached to it. Um, but of course, um, things kind of changed in, sort of changed in 2017 when the New York Times splashed on their front page um, the story of uh, the Navy, Navy? Yeah, the Navy, UF, uh, the Navy uh, footage of various UFOs encountered by their pilots. And of course, you know, the, the, the notorious Tic Tac um, UFO came out of there. Um, and of course, now a lot of people in the podcast field and, you know, the sort of weirder UFO community um, kind of poke fun at the whole Tic Tac thing because it's sort of, in a sense, it's sort of come to not. Because it was supposed to, you know, it was sort of supposedly the harbinger of, you know, disclosure and all this, all of this information was going to, was forthcoming and the government was finally um, going to be admitting to its flying saucer secrets and really nothing like that has happened. Um, the most momentous thing has been that the government has said, um, there are things flying around up there and we have encountered them and we have recorded them as you've seen, and we don't really know what they are. Um, we don't think they're a danger to security as of yet. So they're admitting there's something weird, but they're, you know, that's, that's basically, that's basically it. Um, but they seem to be still, um, there seems to be a definite orchestration of narrative 
Um, and nothing spectacular. In fact, it's the opposite. It's sort of like a narrowing down of expectations almost. You know, it's like, it's like they couldn't hold on to the cat in the bag anymore. So they let it out, but they're saying, well, look at this thing. Look, it's a Tic Tac. <laughs> it doesn't really, <laughs> um, it, it doesn't really uh, do anything scary. It looks pretty tiny. Look at it in black and white. And we, by the way, we've got it in our crosshairs. It's, it's always seen in mm -hmm. that, um, that framework, that context of targeting technology and military. It's a military, um, context that you always now see this in. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people have been talking about the fact that it seems as if the past, what, 60, 70 years, um, the whole post-war era of UFOs, flying saucers, and people trying to figure out what they are and trying to just engage with it seems almost like it's being swept under the rug. Like, this is all a big reboot, but this time, um, you know, the Pentagon and or maybe Congress now that, you know, if certain things get passed, will kind of be controlling the narrative. That's the sense that you get. That's a chunk of, that's a huge chunk of history and thinking um, and literature and people's ex personal experiences of all sorts, mostly the herring type, um, that's been kind of like shoved under the rug, right? When, so, not long after the New York Times articles, the book UFO Reframing, UFOs, the Reframing the Debate, um, came out. And I myself have been pulled back into being super interested in the paranormal for the first time in it seems like a couple of decades. I think we talked about this the last yeah, time. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Sort of like after the 90s were like, for me, this sort of golden age of really um, getting into this stuff. And then it's sort of like 9-11 uh, happened. <laughs> and, you know, shit got too real. And all of that sort of like seemed to have gotten uh, drowned out by the very intensity of what was happening to everybody in the world and the US and you know everything that happened after that. So for me personally, I don't know about everybody else, but for me personally, um, interest in the anomalous and all of the things that I thought was so groovy in the 90s sort of just went quiet. And then they came back. And after I'd moved to Chicago in 2017, Mothman showed up in a my neighborhood or not my neighborhood, but you know, in Chicago. Um, and people were talking about that and that sort of like pulled me back into it. And then the New York times stories came out. And by that time I was listening to a lot of podcasts and getting the impression that a lot of people had never abandoned the stuff. It stuck with it. And there was, there was quite a wealth of different kinds of viewpoints um, narratives that were not the government conspiracy, um, 
you know, nuts and bolts kind of materialistic thing. And I was delighted to read a book like Reframing the Debate because it sort of, for me, it sort of took up where I left off. Where I left off was reading Keel, um, reading um, Valet. Um, I had started to read um, Harper and just finished. As, as Yay, you know. I only just finished the book uh, a couple of months ago. Um, but I started all that in the 90s, you know. And um, so there were all these really interesting ideas about what the anomalous and what flying saucers could be and what their relationships could be with um, other weird, anomalous, mysterious um, thing, other things that people have been dealt, dealing with since, since there were humans on Earth. Um, and I was really fascinated by the fact that there were all these different viewpoints in that book. And the fact that there were so many personal takes, Mike Clellan's whole take on as an experiencer and also the whole narrative about owls. He's become the owl guy, right? But um, there was that. There was um, Greg Bishop. A lot of the people that um, I read and listen to now and have been since that time are represented in that book. Susan Demeter. Uh, Greg Bishop, uh, um, Joshua Cushion, Red Pill. That book was sort of my formal introduction to their points of view. Um, and I found all that stuff really fascinating. And I was really impressed with the amount of, um, the amount of thinking and feeling that was going on around this subject. And I think what happened was, um, and just to backtrack a little bit too, um, so I'm a graphic designer and I'm in um, branding, right? So most of my career, I've, it's been my job to not just like say draw logos, but to kind of help put together a narrative for a brand and when you do that kind of thing um you throw a wide net culturally because you need to find out you know let's say you have a, uh, a product and so you find out who uh that product's audience is intended to be what that audience's values are what narratives speak to them and then that way you can build something that will speak to them and be interesting to them right um, so that was always my favorite part of a project because it turned, that's the part that's like cultural anthropology, which is like my favorite. I was just about to say that actually. Yep. Yep. I was yeah. about to say, oh, so you're using anthropological tools and methods to like divine what values Absolutely. will draw people in. That's really cool. Yep. Yep. And, um, I mean, not, not every company I've worked at has handled it quite the same way. Some are a lot more kind of business-like and less imaginative, but the best places um, have always started out, again, with just a wide net. You know, they'll bring in all the creatives in the company for the that first big brainstorm because they just want a lot of ideas up on the wall. And at that point, you can, you can use anything for inspiration. You can use, I've 
you can use poetry, you can use imagery, uh, you go, you know, you do your research. Uh, are there any stories connected to this brand that um, have something interesting in the past? Or, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I used my job as an excuse to dive back into things like mythology and <laughs> symbolism. And I mean, it was, it was great. So that you know, my training as a designer combined with, I think, my particular generation, right? So I was born in 61. Technically, I'm a boomer. I think I, I spiritually am more like, I think I'm more like um, Gen X. You know, it's like, like yeah. my wife is Gen X. She and I share, you know, the same kind of I like to call it sort of 70s cynicism, but kind of grounded in 60s idealism, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in that way, we're both kind of children of the counterculture. Not literally, my folks definitely were not counterculture people, but, you know, I absorbed what I saw and read at the time. Um, but having been born in 61, I was around for something I would call like 50s light, you know, like so. And the fact that my folks were not that well off, like we got our first TV in the 70s, uh, first color TV in the 70s. So it was all black and white till then. And, um, you know, things like black and white TV, uh, the networks, um, the uh, the kind of personalities that were um, uh, what would you call uh, like authoritative, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, Walter Cronkite, the Walters, yeah, Walter Walt Walt Disney. Uh, in my you know, when I was like four, I kind of thought they were the same person. You know, it's like a guy <laughs> with a mustache in a suit and a tie, and they were very nice and kind and smart and avuncular and they were on tv and they introduced me to things whether it was like the news or you know some kind of amazing animated thing you know um so the values of the 50s were kind of still around um when i was a kid uh tv kind of went to sleep at what by maybe midnight and then the test pattern would come on um, which I thought was freaky as hell. I remember being kind of scared of the test pattern when I was a kid because I didn't know you what too. it was. Yeah. Well, it, it made noise. Horrible, it makes that horrible sound. Well, which which one? Just a boop. Like there was the yeah that boop, and then right. <laughs> and then if you got the static, sometimes static was involved, and yeah. I never liked that sound. Yeah. Uh, right. You'd you'd either get the test pattern or it would just go away and you'd get snow. Yeah. So. Very early on, I got the sense that oh, there's this universe that's just like snow, and it goes right. And in fact, I had um, one of the scariest nightmares I had as a probably around a five year old uh, that I still remember was the dream was I was in that snow world, right? Like I was sort of like um, immersed in it, and I could vaguely see a very angry face through the snow, like just grimacing, right? And then I felt like it was choking me, like it was trying to kill me. And then I woke up. 
<laughs> so I did not like the snow. I don't um, blame you. There is a case of somebody whose sleep paralysis entity was made of the snow. Really? Gonna, yeah. Yep. There's, I think there's an old hag version that's that's like that. Yeah. See that that's fascinating because that's that's all you know that all goes with um, what this project um, is about, which goes kind of beyond. Like uh, Valet was the guy. I mean, there were people before that who did it, like um, like Jung, who put together mankind's mythologies and folklore with what was going on with flying saucers and aliens. Um, Jung did it to us to an extent, but it was really Valet who, I mean, you know, with the Magonia book, he really put that on the map. Um, but this thing of continuities between different paradigms, especially in time, that's what I'm really fascinated by. And what I was getting to and talking about my generation is that I, I feel like I feel like in a way I've been blessed for having a life that straddled a whole bunch of paradigm changes, like a lot, like so many things have changed since I was old enough to be conscious of my black and white TV and the test pattern to now, you know, like I still remember the first time I, I, um, I surfed on the internet. And it's impossible to kind of convey that feeling mm -hmm. to someone who's of a generation who's native, right? Who's a digital native. There's almost no way to convey the, the giddiness of that. I mean, there was a reason they called it surfing, you know, like when you'd go from one site to one site to one site using hypertext. Um, and now nobody thinks about it. And, you know, some people don't even do that kind of thing anymore they they just swipe around on their phone oh, wow. it's a totally different experience um so i'm really conscious of the fact that um human beings have well each generation has what i would call um no, novel experiences um and my novel experience experiences had to do with technology like television where I would see something that I didn't quite understand that was fascinating and entertaining yet in some ways scary because I didn't understand it. And it wasn't even the kind of thing that people talked about. Like, it's not like my parents ever explained to me, it never, be, it never came up in conversation. Like, what was the test pattern? Why does it pop up on your television? Um, when we go outside, what are those symbols on the wall in the yellow circle, which are the um, fallout shelter mm -hmm. symbols that were all over New York? So when I was little, um, and this is me kind of looking back, I feel like I was aware of all of these things, sites that were, uh, I was aware of a whole visual language that was just there, that was on TV, that was in the environment, that was on signage, 
that nobody was, that just wasn't a subject of conversation. And so I didn't quite know what it was. And eventually I understood what it was. But um, I was, I've always remembered the fact that when I was a kid, there was a whole mysterious world out there um, that wasn't the world of myth and fairy tale and folklore. It was this wor world you couldn't even put your, that didn't have a name. You know, it was just sort of like, if I were to look back now and put a name on it, I would say it was, it, they were the visual traces of a kind of infrastructure that our technological society erected. Like, you know, like TV is pretty seamless right now, right? How people relate to their devices is pretty seamless. There's an interface that's designed to be as seamless as possible because um, people selling things want as few steps between you and pressing that purchase button as possible. But when this big mass media thing was starting, the seams were showing. It was sort of part of the culture. Um, the fact that, the, that, you know, television ended at a certain time and that somehow that meant that there'd be something that you couldn't explain on your screen. That's like, that's, that's the infrastructure showing through. That's like the seams mm -hmm. of that kind of thing. And... Um, it occurred to me as I was, I was lucky enough to find my original notes from the very beginning of this whole process. Um, so this was, we were on a break. We were on vacation in Wyoming, <laughs> actually where we're going this, this weekend. Uh, we were trying to get into the, um, into the groove of uh, a yearly ski trip which is something that my wife and her family has done every year. And we were trying to get the kids into that. So we went in early in March of 2019. I don't ski. They, everyone else skied. <laughs> I hung back with the hot toddies and my books and my notes. And I had just finished uh, reframing, the, uh, reframing the debate. And I had an opportunity to sit down and think, okay, so what's my reframe? What is my relationship to UFOs? What's my personal take on UFOs? And, and I saw this in my notes. I remember that I, I went through this whole uh, thought process of thinking back to the era, right? Because I'm like, I grew up with flying saucers. They weren't even called UFOs for the most part then they were but not you know it was still popularly flying saucers now it's going to be uap now they're like little tic tacs and i'm like wait hold up something is very different and that's when i just sat down and thought to myself i started asking the questions that i would ask myself about a brand so <laughs> instead of kind of asking questions to create a symbol instead of kind of finding the raw material to create a symbol, I'm doing the reverse. I have this thing, an icon, a symbol, which is a flying saucer. And in a sense, I'm sort of um, back in, you know, reverse engineering it, but not in a technological way, but in a cultural way. Like You're thick reading. 
Yes. I'm like, where is, why a flying saucer? Why that thing at that time? And not so much before, not so much now. I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, we were talking about how, um, Barbara, you saw you, you saw flying saucer, a classic right. daytime disc, right. right? So people will, they still, people still see them. Um, but culturally that is what they were, you know, they weren't black triangles. They oh, weren't yeah. giant motherships, you know, they were, um, they were flying saucers. Yeah. And, um, actually, have you seen, oh God, what's the name of it? Uh, one of the better documentaries that came out that have come out recently. Um, the phenomenon, the phenomenon. Yeah. Watching that was, that was one of those things that just reinforced my thinking at the time, because all the early reports, you see these old guys, they're like, you know, they're all pilots back in the day in the fifties, but they're all, you know, pretty old now. Almost every description of a UFO at the beginning of that documentary was really specific. It was a disc. It was often silvery, reflective, mm -hmm. um, almost featureless, right? So, I mean, this was a, a thing, right? So I thought back to that era and I thought back to, you know, taking a personal take, um, being born in 61, what do I remember of it? I mean, I missed a lot of it, um, but I kind of caught the tail end of it in the 60s. <clears throat> and a lot of that was just part of pop culture at that point. Mm -hmm. I think of um, Outer Limits. I think of Lost in Space. I think of Star Trek. These are, you know, that's, that stuff is all like part of my DNA. Um, but that all came out of the flying saucer flaps from just a few years before those shows were, were on television. And it occurred to me in the same way that as a child, I found this sort of nameless world of artifacts kind of unnerving. It occurred to me that Regular people in the wake of World War II must have been similarly finding a lot of stuff very unnerving that was suddenly just becoming part of their lives that, you know, they didn't really understand and they had to rely on the, um, uh, the experts of the day, right, to tell them what was going on. Scientists, government people, um, advertising people, um, um, psychologists. There was this whole um, layer of expertise that, tr that translated for the regular American what was going on in terms of the atom bomb. <laughs> um, new media like television and radio, you know, so a farmer, let's say in the early 1950s or the late 1940s must've been looking around 
at their, I mean, not to, not to generalize, but I, I sense that a lot of people must have been looking around at, at their world and being unnerved, right? Like their grandparents were probably among the first to see a plane flying in the sky or to, you know, have a telephone, right? And from that time, from the early 20th century to the mid-century, so much changed. Oh, yeah. Um, and a lot of it had to do with forces that were essentially invisible to the human eye, right? <laughs> radiation. You know, it's like, what is radiation? You know, what is... So here's the thing. I found out later that oh yeah this is a thing you know the um malaise of modernism it's like it's like a subject that people have written about but it, that's essentially what i was trying to frame for myself as a context for the flying saucer because i feel that the flying saucer and jung says this a little bit in his book about flying saucers because um we, we were lucky to have jung live through that time, and I think he brought a lot of really good knowledge really early to the, you know, the flying saucer era, the, the immediate post-war era. Um, people were unnerved. There was a malaise. There were, you know, there, there people were scared, of course, of the bomb, of the Cold War. Um, but there were just so many things in their lives, so many forces that they couldn't understand. Um and that they had to rely on other people to tell, to explain to them. Um, and I really think that the, the flying saucer is, as Jung put it, I mean, he said, he called it a mandala. Like it was something that, uh, It was sort of a vision of something integrated into itself that was whole, right? Everyone's feeling fragmented emotionally, intellectually, right? But somehow this object, which is round and that, you know, flies around in the air, um, seems complete and in and of itself. And that that was you know, that was, that might've been one reason that suddenly people were seeing this kind of thing everywhere that this had materialized externally, this sort of sense of, um, an integrated, an integrated whole, the integrated, the integrated person to Jung could easily be symbolized by a ball or a sphere or a disc, because that's the shape that, that a mandala takes. It's got, this a def clearly defined center it's got a clearly defined edge um and that's how i mean he had already been studying that kind of thing so to him the flying saucer just sort of satisfied that line that line of thinking for him um And as I just dug further and further back into this whole thing, the flying saucer in the context of this post-war era, 
I started formulating this idea of um, an American technological imaginal. Um, let me see if I can explain that in a quick way. So some of these invisible forces that I'm talking about are simply things like we understand them now as um, electricity, gravity, right? Um, the science of the invisible. That was beginning to be understood at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Um, hang on, I lost my train of thought there. Sorry. No, so, you're <laughs> fine. It's, 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 this subject matter is so, um, it's kind of a big puzzle mm -hmm. with lots of little pieces. And I've been sort of tacking, tackling it from different directions. It's definitely not a linear process of, of, of putting this stuff together. No. Um, wait, so I was, I was talking about the signs of the invisible and, Oh, oh! I was talking about the the technical, the technological imaginal. If you turn the clock back to the late nineteenth century, we get um, a couple of things that changed everything. Right? We're talking about we've been talking about paradigm changes, right? Like uh, the introduction of the telephone, the introduction of the light bulb in eighteen seventy nine. I think it was. Um, and that's one of those things people even forget. People don't remember how different the world was before light bulbs. I mean, people rediscover every five years, it seems now, the fact that people had two sleeps before mm -hmm. light. People go to bed basically when the sun went down uh, and get up sometime in the middle of the night and people would be awake for a little while and they'd, you know, do a few things they could do in the limited light of a of a of a candle or, or you know an oil lamp or something, and then go back to bed. And it's treated as this big revelation by whoever rediscovers this, right? <laughs> but it's <laughs> simply the fact that we have amnesia for things uh, when technology changes our world so drastically. We have amnesia for the world that was that came before. Um. So we have the telephone, we have the light bulb, we have suddenly uh, people driving in cars. Um, we have a whole, you know, we have gas stations that now have to supply you with your oil. So all this infrastructure starts popping up. Um, radio happens. And radio was the one, well, aside from cars, but radio was where this tide of technology kind of connected with consumers because radio was designed for people to, I mean, it could have gone in many different directions, um, but the decision was made to make it uh, something that a family could buy, um, that there were replacement parts for, and the whole sort of, you know, um, amateur radio tech culture started 
bubbling in the 1920s, right? So what happened coincidentally to that? Some of the same publishers, Gernsback, who was putting up some of the early radio uh, consumer magazines, um, he started putting out science fiction. Right. Um, Gernsback was the first science fiction publisher. He, he, he coined a term for it, scientific fiction. And then someone just made it a little more graceful and called it yeah. science fiction. Um, but so this uh, American um, tech imaginal, I see it as starting more or less in the 20s. It has roots that go further back, but it really exploded in the 20s. And that's when you have people buying radios, um, buying magazines so they could understand what radios were because these magazines um, were all about different kinds of radios. They were for radio buffs. You know, there was like the first, the first mass market for a product um, where you had, you know, geeks talking to each other about, you know, about this kind of thing and what the latest models were and what the, you know, how to repair them and how to, um, how to update, how to upgrade your radio. It's sort of like, um, there was a certain agency that consumers had with the radio that they didn't have with telephones. They had it to a certain extent with cars, but not everyone had a car. Radio radios were sort of like, that was the thing that really gave the American citizen more or less a kind of agency with the technology that was coming up at the time. And it's not an accident that science fiction started in the 20s. The same publisher who did radio right. magazines started science fiction magazines. Um, and there was this giddiness at the time, the sense of the future being, you know, that was when people started really thinking the future could be really different within my lifetime. And so there was this real focus on the speed of change and um, the utopian aspect mm -hmm. of technology, right? The world exhibitions, the world fair. Right, right, it absolutely. huge. <laughs> yep. Yep. The roots of that, again, were all in the 19th century, but it all really blew up in the, in the 20th century. Um, and then something happened that was inconvenient, which was the Depression. <laughs> yeah. But it's sort of, but that, but actually the, the technology as fantasy helped get people through the 1930s mm -hmm. and what was waiting at the end of the 1930s, but World's Fairs, like the 1939 World's Fair in New York, which was so Buck Rogers. It was so Flash Gordon, mm -hmm. right? Um, Where's my flying car? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, you saw, um, was it in Captain America? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big MCU geek. So Captain America, the first Avenger, there was yeah. like, they had this sort of really weird version of the world's fair because it was in 39 or 40, but it was the globe from the sixties world's fair, which right. is very strange. It was kind of this weird amalgamation, but yeah, Tony Stark had his, you know, he had a car that was starting to fly. He had this flying car. Um, science fiction, the World's Fair, um, 
all of that was sort of just wrapped up in this sort of, you know, um, American dream, the future is near kind of ethos throughout the 20th century. Um, and after World War II, of course, when the GIs came back, it sort of just went straight into this culture of um, American exceptionalism and the American dream. You know, everyone was, everyone had a suburban home, everyone had a car, everyone, that was the highlight of consumer culture. But the other thing was that it was also, there was a tinkers, a tinkerer's culture that was wrapped up in that, that started in the 20s, went through the 50s, but seemed to start dying down in the 60s. And I think that was because of the transistor, because then all of a sudden it was less about people just replacing, you know, tubes out of the back of their radio. And it was all about ditching the radio and getting a new radio, you know, the, the next mm -hmm. souped up radio. And that trend has continued now where people, you know, uh, nobody patches up their smartphone. They toss it and they get a new one, you know? So at a certain point, technology just kind of became opaque and the flying saucer seemed to come in at, in really it's sort of the, um, the tail end of when this tinkerer's culture existed. It was like after world war two, um, there was a widening gulf between say scientists or researchers who um, were on the dime from say the government or from, you know, um, secret projects that had to do with national security in the, in the nuclear age. Right. There was this widening gulf between the consumer and the professional technician scientist and that gulf is huge right now um and i think in some ways the flying saucer when it showed up when it did at the end of world war ii it was it was frightening it was sort of a it was frightening in some ways of course but it was also and this what was bears this out is this sort of like space brothers culture that was happening in the fifties. It was also, um, strangely a kind of harbinger of hope. I think it was comforting. Um, they were going to save us from ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Like... They were, they were telling, you know, they were telling us, they kept reinforcing this idea, the messages from the space brothers and from, you know, beings that were being channeled around the same time, um, that mankind had re reached some kind of threshold, mm -hmm. but that it was within mankind's power to continue the, you know, the onward, the upward slope of, of their spiritual slash technological trajectory. Right. Um, 
but I think as the fifties turned into the sixties, um, something happened. Um, technology became more opaque. Uh, UFOs got in a sense, less familiar and more mysterious. I don't know if you would, I don't know. Would you, what would your thought be on something like that? That's like just my sense of it. Again, it's a broad statement, but when I think about that shift culturally from shiny flying saucers and space brothers to, um, well, in the eighties, black triangles and, you know, instead of, uh, uh, contactees we have abductees and there's a certain the alienness actually goes through the roof mm-hmm. as as we move away from the 50s and in, and towards the current era right i think and i think oh i'm so sorry oh i was just going to say and i think that parallels things like paranoia about government you know when you think about all all the stuff that was going on in the 60s you know mk ultra cone hold pro and you know uh going into um via uh watergate oh of course the jfk assassination thrown in there right it's like there's a certain the optimism went away Mm mm-hmm um, the consumer, the, cons- the consumer culture changed. Um, you know, the things that people bought, in a sense, kind of started looking more and more the same. You know, they didn't have the shiny doodads in the. You know, cars lost their fins and all the silvery bits, and they came in less colors. I don't know if that's technically true, but it seems like um, consumer items in the fifties, let's say, were very fanciful and very colorful Mm -hmm. and they were kind of it was all about a kind of delight right yeah and that all sort of dialed down in a way there were other things that became delightful but you know but consumer items like that something something big changed and everything became i the way i like to put it is everything became technology became more opaque in a a weird way I I actually agree with you a lot. I mean, I did not live through these changes. I am I am a millennial. <laughs> I was born in 1990. Um, oh man! But I feel old. <laughs> I feel old. My baby brother is like 15. <laughs> I probably remember what I had for breakfast the day you were born. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but I okay. think. The early flying saucers, like as a Jungian symbol, do contain wholeness. But they're also, and I think this is very silly, possibly of me, but they shine. Mm-hmm. They are yeah. they aren't shining with light from themselves, but they are shiny, and they are whole, and they are self contained, and they are glorious, and they fly around in perfect freedom. Mm-hmm. And yep. I think there's an implication of promise there. Like we, as you said, we felt very, very much so like technology was going to save us. There was a lot of promise. The future was bright. And I think that really was reflected in the consumer goods. Like I yeah. can't explain the sheer joy and prettiness of making fridges like 
bright robin's egg blue except <laughs> that it was like look we made a fridge you don't have to use an ice box anymore look how cool right. this is right right yeah and, like yep. there was such a sense of play and joy and like we've mm-hmm. made all these things that will literally improve everyone's life yes yep. like the yep. point of technology then really was like yes we want to make money but there was also this very strong feeling of this is going to make everyone's lives easier. And it was marketed that way. Like particularly, you know, washing machines, refrigerators, towards women. women. They were like, (laughs) here, honey, this will make, you will not spend 12 hours a day cleaning and cooking ever again. And you know why (laughs) that that was? Because when the, when the men came back from the war, the women had to go back home. They had been working in all of the, defense department you know all the defense plants sure they've been building airplanes and jeeps and all these things and a lot of those women liked their jobs and really didn't want to come home Mm -hmm. yep but the the marketing yeah the marketing of that era kind of was like yeah we know you're not building these things we know your husbands came back and they have these new factory jobs and everything but look how pretty this vacuum cleaner is <laughs> it's bright green look right. how beautiful mamie eisenhower's bathroom in the white house is she did it pink <laughs> i mean seriously that's that's what yep. it is you know yep. and it yep. became this sort of technicolor version of life yeah uh, yes america at the time was beautiful and, and everybody yep. was beautiful. It was so yep. full of yep. promise. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think men I, went to men went to college for the first time. Lots of lots of men coming back from the war on the GI bill, they would be the first men in their families to go to college and get a yep. degree and go yeah. from blue collar to white collar work. Mm-hmm. The economy so, was I, good. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember I remember hearing um in some documentary, and I think that, oh, God, what's her name? The lead singer for Jefferson Airplane. Grace. Grace Slick. Grace Slick. Gra- yep, Grace Slick was talking about that generation, and she said, this really struck me at the time when I heard it. She said that her generation of American kids who were educated in the 50s um, were the best. And, you know, of course, we're talking about you know, relatively successful suburban white America, but that they were the most well-educated generation ever. And so that is what fueled the values of the 60s because I think critical faculties just went through the roof, you know. People saw what was going on, right? And so they responded, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, the, in, in the fifties, there was a sense again for that segment of, of the population that, um, yeah, the future was all, uh, coming to us in a straight line and it was an arrow that was going upwards and things were just going to get better and better. And, you know, pretty soon it was going to be, um, utopia, but (laughs) it didn't, you know, the downside of all of that, of course, was that. Uh, industry um, did things like ruin the environment and give people cancer and start wars and, you know, that kind of thing. So that was also part of the 
part of the you know part of the reason that the 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 shine was taken off of 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 that you know of that era um but the other thing is that the you know the fear that people had after hiroshima and the changes that people saw who had grown up in let's say rural america right rural america was fairly unchanged up till just past world war ii and suddenly the infrastructure exploded because you needed power plants you needed um uh interstates you needed um all sorts of stuff that this new um this new kind of life required and that created an environment that i think was kind of scary and alien yeah and i think that's still true well and it was gray it was yeah. all gray it was gray and black asphalt like mm-hmm Suddenly, sure, skyscrapers are shining, but while they're being built, they're not. Right. You know, you've got grungy streets, you've got, you know, smog all of a sudden. Right. (laughs) Where smog really wasn't a thing. Not that horse dung would have been great in the big cities (laughs) pre car. (laughs) But still, some of the the descriptions of, for example, New York, I've read from a historical perspective. I'm like, okay, great. Lots of horse poop, lots and lots lots of pigs, pigs eating out of people's garbage. This does not sound fun. In the streets, right. But, you know, you've got, and you're right, like there, there was this nuclear fear that set in Mm -hmm. which was not helped by the downwinder fiasco right Right. (laughs) at all speaking of rural america and that was something that was one of those really valuable things that was brought back up by valet in uh that last book trinity i found that the most interesting part of trinity was the story that I'd never heard before, which was of people who lived like in New Mexico. Yes. <laughs> you know, the, the family that were in their house the night that the bomb went off in the desert and they were like, what the hell was that? And the woman peeked through the crack in the door and was forever blinded in one eye. I mean, it's like biblical, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. just like, it's almost a little bit of Lot's wife there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and then the fact that they had to live with further testing and more and more of the land, again, more and more of the land that those folks grew up in and thought they knew, thought that was familiar, but more and more of that land was being repurposed and being put off limits. And they could, you know, there were no explanations forthcoming because yeah. it was about national security. Um, so while all of this wonderful stuff was happening in the fifties in terms of the consumer culture at the same time, um, things were just changing in not a good way. 
and mm -hmm. the sort of the bright and shiny was sort of in a kind of a compensation for the other stuff that was that was going on yeah yeah I can definitely see that um so i think back to you know when i was starting to formulate this stuff i'm thinking back to myself as a kid looking at the test pattern and i think back to the classic photographs of daytime discs which were the things that those were the formative images for me in mm -hmm. that era right and for me personally there are three that come to mind and it's really funny because they can kind of tell a story if you look at the three of them in sequence and the first one is um the farmer trent photos from mcminnville in 1950 right mm -hmm. the next one for me is the picture by uh the pictures by um i think he was a highway his job had to do with the infrastructure i think he was like a highway inspector rex heflin who in California, Santa Ana in 1965 took that picture of that, the UFO that looked like a, the flying star said it looked like a, like a, a pork pie hat yeah. Yeah. over the highway. Um, that to me was the, sec the, the, the next amazing photograph. And the third was the photograph of the, again, kind of a pork pie hat like flying saucer hovering over a house oh yeah that was taken by um i forget his name he was the the barber in uh, zanesville yep ohio in uh 67 60 no he took the pictures in 66 but it all hit the media it, in 67 you know, yeah in 67 it was on the cover of like everything those three shots to me are the classic photographs because those are the three that to me are convincing look real although all three of them have been questioned um and the latter two are i think these days more or less considered hoaxed right they've been considered debunked um the the trent photographs people really try to debunk them but i it's not there yet i mean it got to the point where people were looking at, you know, blowing up the pictures and seeing, supposedly seeing, you know, they were counting like um, the grains in the texture of the photograph right. to convince everyone that there was a wire from that the right. model UFO. That and I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, like, I'm sorry, guys. I don't, I don't see the wire. You know, it's like. <laughs> I, some people believe in flying saucers. Some people believe in wires that don't seem to actually be there. Um, so the Trent, the Trent picture seems to still kind of, you know, it, it's, it's still sitting there as something that's just like an odd image and mm -hmm. um, farmer Trent and his wife to their dying day was like, no, that's that we saw that and we took a picture of it and life has been, life was hell right after that. It's like, we kind of wish we didn't take a picture of it because we never got, you know, yeah. just kept bothering us about it. And like, they, those guys had like, there was, um, they got nothing out of taking those photographs. Exactly. And the, um, 
the Zanesville photograph, I think what killed that one was that NICAP came to investigate and they found that the order, they, they could tell the order the pictures were taken. And that didn't jibe with the story that they were being told by the photographer. And so right there, it was like, okay, so they dismissed it. And um, it was considered a hoax from that point on. But I still think there's, I think there's still some open questions even about that, about that photograph. So, um, but the Farmer Trent picture, you know, I look at it and I, I look at it with the eye of someone who, let's say, is trying to figure out a marketing angle or a brand. You know, you're trying to figure out a narrative. I see that picture and there's something very poignant about it. I see a picture of that's taken by a farmer in 1950 and you still see his world in that photograph. Mm -hmm. You see the hills, you know, it's basically untouched nature beyond his, his farm. You see a little bit of his farm, um, some wires, right? Cause that's the beginning of, I don't know if they were telephone wires or electrical wires, right? But these are like, these are sort of the elements that you, you see in all of these photographs. It's like, either it's the countryside or it's suburbia. There's some signs of technology. And then there's this thing in the sky that's just inexplicable. One of these things is not like the others. Right. But there might be some kind of funny relationship. Yeah. Right. Thematically, right? The Farmer Trent picture to me is... The, to me, if I were to like to put on my my um, my kind of branding advertising hat, I would say that's that picture encapsulates the moment that things changed. When you you've got in that photograph, you've got rural America um, as depicted by you know mention your mid century or early twentieth century painter of rural, you know, life. Right. You've got that. And then you've got this anomalous object, right? That's really something more out of surrealism. That's yeah. just sitting up there. This object is in the distance. It seems to be kind of flying away. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like here's a farmer looking up at the future. And it's like, it's sort of like in the distance. He's not connected to it. He sees it. And it's not coming towards him. It's kind of flying off. And then the next picture, Heflin's picture, he, this time it's his world and it's a highway. And that's about, you know, that's America as it's changing and highways are being built. And this guy's job is he's not a farmer. He's part of the infrastructure. And here's this flying saucer. It's closer. This time it looks like it's buzzing him. It's like flying this way. It's almost like the sense that in that photograph, the UFO, the flying saucer, is acknowledging the photographer. You know what I mean? It's like, mm -hmm. it's like a vague, there's a vague difference between those two photographs. One is a photograph of something in the distance. One is a photograph of something that has encountered you or you've encountered mm -hmm. it. And then the third picture in that sequence for me is this flying saucer hovering pretty huge you know, in the picture over a house 
that flying saucer came down to look at you. Mm -hmm. So there's just this kind of narrative shift that I think segues nicely from one to two to three within those three pictures. And to me, they actually kind of reflect what was going on culturally in the country at the time, right? It's like the old world is going away. The new world of technology and infrastructure was coming in that was sort of alienating. And then you had suburbia where you had, you know, a, a barber commuting from Zanesville to actually his house wasn't in Zanesville. The barbershop was in Zanesville. Everyone thought of it as the Zanesville flying saucer because that's where they saw it in his window. He put the prints of his flying saucer in his shop window, probably to, you know, bring people in, start, you know, kind of start conversations and stuff like that. Um, but I think it's there's a very neat narrative that happens between those three photographs and kind of what was going on culturally. And I think back to Farmer Trent and his generation who had to deal with, gosh, so many things that um, were beyond his control, but that affected him anyway, the Cold War. I mean, even at that time, even, um, uh, you know, psychology was starting to become really known to the public right around that time too. So you've got the unconscious, <laughs> you've got Russia, you've got um, radio waves, television waves. Um, the world was just full of stuff that you couldn't see that was big and powerful and that was in a sense dictating a life to you that you could not understand. And you had no idea where it was going in a few years. And that to me is that's highly unnerving and highly mm -hmm. destabilizing. Oh yeah. And you also had for farmer Trent, agricultural practices were changing drastically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Huge changes happened at that time. My, my maternal grandfather was a farmer in that time period. And before that you used animal manure to fertilize your fields. And that's what you did. Right. You had animals, you had plants they cross fertilized each other and, and everything was great. Well, after the war, we had all of this nitrogen that we had stockpiled to make nitroglycerin to make bombs. Right. Uh, but we weren't bombing anybody. <laughs> they're, 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 and nobody wanted to buy them. Right. <laughs> nobody wanted they had to, to do buy something it. with it. Uh -huh. So they had to do something with it. And they realized, well, you know, nitrogen is largely what is in you know, the, the soil that makes things grow well, why don't we put it in bags and market right. it to <laughs> farmers? And so that's what they did. And so farmer Trent probably had already seen his life change quite a bit. And he mm -hmm. may not have really liked that change. I know my right. grandfather didn't much care for it and argued about it and said it was a bad idea, but, I mean, he also worked at a defense plant making nitroglycerin. So that's part of why he knew it was a bad idea. You, know, right. you can't just have nitrogen stacked up willy-nilly in your <laughs> oh, barn God. and not expect something yeah. bad to happen. Right, right. I mean, manure oh, can do things too, but... 
That just takes me right to what happened in uh, in Beirut. Mm-hmm. What was that stuff? It was again. It was stuff that shouldn't have been stockpiled. Yeah. Nobody was keeping track of it, and of course, ammonium nitrate. I think. Yeah, yeah, and then it went off. Yep. Um. Oh my gosh! Uh, I just remembered something. So we've been talking about basically kind of um, a landscape that's become that has become kind of alien. In a weird way, I would say that um, huge chunks of the American landscape became as weird as you as you know the cover of a science fiction pulp from back in the day, right? Like you have sort of brutalist um, structures, right? That you don't really, don't you don't really know what they do. You just know that they take up a chunk of the landscape now, and then you've got like. Um, power line towers oh yeah that they cut swaths through the woods to put those through and they're and, huge and they look and they're like, huge they look like bipedal things yeah when i was a kid i always thought spooky. they looked like robots right 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 um yeah no the, the 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 landscape was changing and it got weird and 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 alien and um industry really changed people's um people's lives and people's entire towns changed entire regions changed because of this like detroit yes and i think this is in uh of course i forget the name of the town so in my research i'm so i read a book uh or started reading a book um called by the bombs early by the bombs early light um which is this guy's study of um the immediate um american cultural response to the bomb to hiroshima and nagasaki and the fact that um you know here is nuclear power that could kill us but also could make life amazing you know it was like that was that again that dichotomy right due to unforeseen circumstances and technical difficulties, this is where the episode ends. We did not plan this. So instead of hearing Marco, Morgana, and I saying farewell in a sensible fashion, you get to hear me saying the internet ate my homework. But you also get this. Marco is presenting his project in its full audiovisual glory on April 22nd from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hosted by Conspiranormal and Strange Realities, it's an online event and tickets are $10. Entitled, The Spirit and the Vessel Reverse Engineering the Flying Saucer Archetypes, this streaming event promises to be a fascinating look at the symbols, meaning, and beauty of the Flying Saucer and how it fits into the society of mid-century America. I'm going, and so should you. (laughs) 